Off the Key podcast, where we review music, new and old. And today, I'm joined by my two regular co-hosts, Garrett. Outside, it's America. And James. Hello there. And we're also joined by our regular fourth member, Freddie. I'm flying. He is flying indeed. And today, we are talking about Garrett's pick, The Joshua Tree by U2. Yes, sir. What a banger and a very overhated band, a very mixed modern reception band, but a classic band nonetheless that had far-reaching impact. Isn't it U2 a reconnaissance plane or something? It is, and that's what they named it. A lot of people think U2, like, you know, me and U2, but no, they named it after the plane, which is a whole lot cooler. U2, I definitely agree. They're a little overhated, but see... I actually did not explore U2 that much until you brought up this album, Garrett. And I will say, I can see why the perception of U2 as a band is so wildly different for, like, Gen Z and Millennials versus, like, Gen Xers and Boomers because they were two completely different bands in those eras. Wildly different. I went and listened to some of their newer stuff. I mean, I've heard it over the years. Songs of Innocence, that little lovely incident, and some of their other stuff. And man, it was just bad. Hot garbage. It was, it was like Coldplay ripoff. And Coldplay's not even that good either. Just garbage. I know whenever I was looking into this album in general, I didn't really have a concept for it, but the term arena rock really came into prominence to me in all of my research. If one of y'all would like to take lead on explaining that. Well, arena rock is a very broad term, but it definitely applies to you too. It's rock that's meant to just sound exciting and be fun to, you know, drink and get shitty to at a concert or, you know, bang your head to. And that's pretty much it. It's usually arena rock is very anthemic. It's very grand, but also kind of substanceless in a lot of cases. But not in U2's case because they don't really have any like party songs very much. Yeah, so. they they lean more into the, like the anthemic, uplifting and big and grand political songs, social political gestures and and statements. Yeah, I know in its general composure, it. I mean, it's definitely nothing too complicated. That's not really what uh, U2's known for. What I really saw definitely here was not. an emphasis on just the grandness of the sound like you said it's definitely something that's meant to be played in a large setting think queen queen is a very larger than life sound queen is a quintessential example of arena rock would you even call it like an orchestral rock sometimes it gets close to that there's like an orchestral symphonic element to a lot of it yes yeah, U2 has a very interesting history and legacy, and not a good one in my opinion. A lot of the stuff that came out of U2, you know, they're a highly in- influential band. I mean, the Joshua Tree itself is one of the highest-selling albums of all time. In fact, the 43rd highest-selling album of all time at around 25 million units. I feel like a lot of the stuff that came out and succeeded U2 was... Not great. It was not great. A lot of these very run-of-the-mill, basic arena rock bands, Christian pop rock is heavily influenced by a lot of the stuff that U2's doing. Growing up, my parents, my mom specifically, she would have the Christian rock radio station on all the time. Honestly, some of U2's stuff reminds me exactly of that. 
U2's specific style is very much prone to that sort of thing, and that just kind of comes with the genre. Depending on the content of what's being put out, you end up with some hit-or-miss things. Now, that being said, it is definitely a case of what it spawned being way... We're not saying that U2's prime work is anything like this. Definitely not. But what spawned from it had a lot of influence in very bad genres of music. Exactly. It's just kind of like Garth Brooks, what his way and his pop styles of writing is a big reason that we have the Southern pop and country, their legacy and like their impact on the genre, even though they themselves were pretty good, their impact was bad. It's because these bands came and found success as an exception to the rule and that everyone exactly. else wants to. It's kind of like the kids on the park that they see they see Steph Curry shooting a bunch of basketballs from the other side of the arena. And they're like, oh, I, no, I want to try to do that. I'm like, he is the exception. You should not all be trying to follow him. He is not the rule. He is the exception to the rule. And they see that and they want to do that. And then they fail miserably at it. Yeah, sometimes a good group, a good band can have an impact, but not a positive one. Yeah, and U2 is a prime example of that. I will say, I mean, they had a pretty solid run in the 80s. They had a very solid run from Boy up to Octung. Let's take Boy and October from War to Octung. All, every album was good and great. Every single, and I think October is good. Boy is, is a very, very mixed bag. I don't care for Boy. But October is very solid. So U2 if you didn't know, is a Dublin, Ireland-based rock band formed in 1976, consisting of Bono, The Edge, Adam Clayton, and Larry Mullen Jr. U2 as a band was originally rooted in post-punk, and their musical style has evolved dramatically throughout their career, as we've said. There are multiple eras of U2. They're all very different, but they all kind of have this trademark backbone set of characteristics that includes Bono's anthemic vocals, Edge's chiming guitar sounds, and their heavy socio-political themes with a lot of spiritual imagery. And what I mean by chiming, so, and I guarantee you, you have heard this technique before. Edge, Edge essentially created it. He, he popularized it. That is for sure. It's when you take your electric guitar, you put a bunch of effects on it, usually a delay pedal, a lot of reverb, and you do this kind of plucky strumming technique that creates a chiming sound. With or without you actually is prime for all that stuff. It goes between a lot of harmonic-based scales here and just kind of takes you away in they're very angelic, is the yes, best way I can describe yes. it. Yes, it's celestial. I guess if you're wondering for like a literal explanation, it's very sparkly, is the way I would describe it. Yeah. Perfect uh, word for it. Yes. They make me feel like a fairy. <laughs> it's also very new wavy, and I think that's the biggest thing that they kept as they evolved as a band, getting away from their early roots in like the new wave post-punk scene, is that they took that kind of those jangly, like, sparkly guitars, and the Edge, like, kept that oh, yeah. as their sound progressed. So much that he got shit for it later on. Yeah. 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 It gets to a point where he became a one-trick pony. Well, that's because that's all he can do. Like, a lot of guitarists I've met, like, personally, could probably outplay the Edge. Like, he is not that proficient. 
Tom Morello, and we always talk about Tom Morello being the guy who's all creatively and like not really a whole lot of technical skill. Tom Morello could shred and technically play him under the table. With what this does, we take this sparkly guitar here and we contextualize that sort of technique with the rest of this album. The core focus of this, like a lot of U2's material, is to just be inherently political and just trying to get out as much of a feeling of want for change. What they do, especially in With or Without You, it kind of really emphasizes the false shininess of the American mythos. And that's what a lot of this album does. It just kind of takes that idea of what, you know, living on this side of the planet is like, but then showing that juxtaposed to what lies underneath. This is really prime with Bullet the Blue Sky. Is that such a juxtaposition to the singles from before? And really works in favor of what the album's trying to do. Mm-hmm. So this album came out in March of 1987. This is quite a uh, interesting time period, to say the least. Yeah, a lot of things, a lot of moving parts in yeah. music. Yeah, yeah, not only music, but just the world in general. For certain, in music, there's a lot of things happening at once that laid the foundation for what would happen in the 90s, uh, especially hardcore punk. There would soon be a revival of the raunchy, like, blues-based hard rock that came with Appetite for Destruction that would come out a few months after this album. And that would all lead into more 90s acts like Sass Jordan and uh, the Black Crows and a lot of other bands that came out then. And, of course, hardcore punk would lead to a lot of the grunge and alternative music scenes that became huge in the night in the nineties, which is actually what you two tried to get into later is that they were, because uh, this album is all about America. Bono and the band, especially Bono were very much enamored with America. And after this album, of course the whole themes, it's this album is wholly American in its themes, but Later, they actually took that a bit further in trying to emulate American music, and that's when they made Rattle and Hum, and that album had good reception, but critically, that album was panned, So that and that kind of made them like halt and re-explore their other, kind of more of their hard rock side and octung, but yeah, they were even they were progressing toward that direction. They do take a look at some some blues and some Irish folk stylings in this album. Not, yeah. as, not near as much as Rattle and Hum, but... They do start that trend. Yeah, there, there's definitely an American flair to this album. Bono wanted to invoke the pictures of landscapes and the desert and the Joshua Tree. The producers of this album, uh, Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno, specifically went the distance to help Bono kind of re realize that visual imagery in this album. That with the added like ambient works and stuff like that added to yeah, tracks all, to all give the, it that kind of like spacey, deserty feel, and I, you get that. You definitely get that. Yeah, the whole time when I was listening to the Joshua Tree, I I got that picture of this desert, looking off into the distance of the desert and watching the sunrise in the dawn. It stuck with me for every single track. 
I see with this album having its two sides, I like to think of it as two aspects. It is the aspect of the American aesthetic and then the in-depth machinations of what they're specifically talking about here. The big sack of crap that is American politics. Yes. The thing with this album is that it's really, really poignant. Every, Every single one of these is associated with some specific event. Particularly of note is the last part of the album, The Mothers of the Disappeared. A really insane rabbit hole of just global politics and how horrifying these sorts of things can end up getting. And this was kind of U2's means of trying to get the message of the Madres de los Desparecidos, the Mothers of the Disappeared, for which this track is named for, in order to support their causes and to make people around the world aware of what Argentina was doing to its own people. This is very much Bono's message that this thing that he loves, that is very, very flawed. So it it is poignant in that manner. Agreed. Now, do we want to go ahead and get on into the track list? Oh, yes. Uh, We're going to take this one by a track by track basis because there is a lot to unpack here, but we're going to try and keep it quick. Or the streets. Have no name. Man, this is such a beautiful opening. This song yes. is about this yeah. saying in Belfast that you can walk down the street and because of the socioeconomic divides, you can tell what religion someone follows and how much money they make based on the street name of the place they live. And Bono was just imagining for a second. And you could say it's heaven and you can say that it's just a better a better future. Um, but he is thinking, what would it be like if if overall equality is achieved into a place where the streets have no name? And um, at the background of this of this song is that this song took way more time to make than any other song on the album. Like Brian Eno ended up saying that forty percent of the time spent working on this album was this song. Wow! Yes, That's... it's it's a powerful song. Oh, it it starts sense. so beautiful. Just the opening, like it's, it's a perfect opening for yeah. an album. Perfect. It, it's absolutely the sunrise of this album, and it really hits you with the wall of sounds. Yeah, very gospel, and then the and then just great yep. riff. Yep, and then yeah, it's just it's sweeping, it's soaring, it's 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 like a plane. Yep. It's like a Midwestern plane. That's what it yeah. feels like. And Larry Mullen Jr. laying down that driving drum groove. It just propels the song to new heights. And man, so Larry Mullen Jr., if you're a drummer, please, and you and you don't really listen to him or haven't really appreciated him yet, please do. The man is great. If you listen to this album, you will appreciate him because yeah. he, he lays down some straight up sick grooves the rhythm section on this album especially side a in particular goes hard he is one of the most creative drummers i've ever heard he makes some very unorthodox beats and it complements the songs perfectly well so as we mentioned before u2 is from ireland and ireland has quite a troubled and complicated history 
<laughs> no kidding. <laughs> to say the least. And Garrett, what you were saying about Belfast, that was, if you put context around it, it it's easy to see like why they would want to make a song about that. Because for really centuries, the Irish have been struggling against all sorts of oppression and persecution from the British. And especially in the 70s and 80s, it was very much a thing that was on the minds of every Irish citizen and even those in Northern Ireland. This song is very, very grandiose. It is very gospel-sounding. And the spirituality of this album is so slight that it works at a, there are parallel lines of the secular and the spiritual running throughout a lot of these songs because you can think to yourself, is he talking about a better Ireland where you know they're free from oppression and they're working together and things are better? Or is he talking about when we get to heaven and we don't have these problems and you know the streets are all paved in gold and the streets have no name? And that is the brilliant part of his writing that he can make these songs that you can interpret any way you want to. If you're religious, you can interpret them in a spiritual way. If you're not, you can interpret them in a secular way. And it's beautiful how he, how he writes. Yeah. It's he, a great opener. He, he leaves it open-ended and yeah, fantastic opener. Moving into the next track, we get more of this beautiful, just sonic landscape that this album has laid out. It feels so sonically cohesive. And I think that is, has a big part to do with Brian Eno. Yep. Oh, shout out to Brian Eno, ambient legend, ambient, absolute Chad, ambient goat. Yes. If you like ambient music and you have not heard Brian Eno, do yourself a favor. Go listen to his stuff. Funny story about Brian Eno is that it's either this song or I, I think it's where the streets have no name. But they took, oh yeah, it is where the streets have no name. They took so long that and they were just so divided on that song that he about took all the tapes and destroyed them to make them like pretty much skip that song or like just do it over. And they, they literally like Lanois and flood literally had to like hold him back. Flood was the sound engineer. They literally have to, had to like stop him and like fit, like almost physically restrain him. Cause he was just getting, he was so tired of working on that song. He was like, they're not getting anywhere, but they eventually worked it out. And and then he goes right into this song. This is the most, to me, this is the most gospel song on the album, mm-hmm. but it's oh, also yeah. because I've heard the live version that they've done with the Harlem Choir, where they have them, you know, like chanting the chorus, and it's just, oh man, it is, it is so spiritual. Even further in the spirituality, the themes of spiritual yearning and frustration you get on this song. He still hasn't found what he's looking for, yeah. he's, and he's held the hand of an angel, but he still hasn't kind of like you were saying, those parallels between the secular and the spiritual, I think that works really well here because you can interpret it as, I still haven't found what I'm looking for spiritually or just in your life in general. This track is one of my favorite tracks on the album. I know it's one of the most popular ones. This is the one off of this album. This is the song that I heard the most on the radio. Yeah, yeah. This was a big hit. Yeah, but I like how minimalist the song is instrumentally yeah but it still feels so large in scope exactly and that is that is due to bono i would say that this is if not his best it is one of the best vocal performances he's ever done the the version where he's with the harlem choir he takes that up to a 10 and it is it if you are not religious you will feel religious in that moment you have you have a religious experience watching that 
man, just the power, the power he puts into the vocals in this song is astounding. And it, every time it gives me goosebumps, every single time. Also, shout out to The Edge, who actually gives backing vocals on some of these tracks, and especially live, and does a very good job, very underrated backup vocalist. And and with when it comes to giving harmonies and other such stuff, Edge is yep. very underrated. The Edge actually has songs that he sings on some U2, like Van Diemen's Land and other songs. Can I just say that songs like these are amazing on a car ride whenever you're by yourself and you just need to sing your lungs out? Yep. Yeah. Like it I is do it built. Every time. It is built for it. And I do it every single time without guilt. To add to that, when I hear this song, I just picture Bono just screaming, belting these vocals out in that plain landscape we were talking about earlier, the kind of desert plain sunrise imagery that the album gives you. I've found that when it comes to genres like these, uh, it's very derivative of what was a kind of popular thing to do with music in regions of Northern Europe and such to kind of make sure that music would drone because it's that droning that keeps like you feeling alive in some extent. That's why you get instruments like bagpipes and, hurdy-gurdies that just kind of have these droning tones that just add to the overall sound. You want something that's big and projects to a lot of people, hence what Arena Rock is. Yeah, there. yeah, no, that's awesome. Also, I have to say, the rhythm section on the song is great. That driving quarter note very, feel that they creative. put under it, it's so simple, but it's perfect for the song. It just puts that pulse in the song, and it makes... It gives it that nice foundation, but also a, a driving groove to make the vocals and the celestial guitar playing even more poignant. Very powerful and grand opening set of tracks here, to say the least. Freddie, you already kind of brought it up earlier, but uh, with or without you, I think the writing on this song is very potent. I think it's honestly, as far as... What he has to say, it's not as impactful as like where the streets have a name or yeah. you know, mothers or something. But as far as like the emotional depth of the and like the exactly. the deepness of the writing, way up out. I'll be honest, this is one of the first U two songs I ever heard, and I did not care for this song when I heard this when I was much younger. But it's kind of like one of those songs, like when you've kind of lived it, when you can relate to the lyrics, like the song suddenly just slaps, and it was definitely that way. And once again. It's got that religious duo tonality to it, but it's yeah. like you want a concrete, you know, an answer to something. He's like, I can't live just in this limbo. I need to either have or have not. I need an I need an answer. I need to the you know the solution. I need the final resolve. I can't be in limbo with or without you. Like you were saying, the song itself, it's not as poignant as the others, but it hit home for me. It really did. I feel like a lot of musicians and a lot of people who have passions that don't really align with their family lives or their personal lives, their relationships, have this moment. They have this fork in the road moment where they say, I'm either doing this with or without you. Yeah. And Bono actually had his with his wife. His, him and his wife were undergoing a very stressful period of time in their marriage. And Bono was constantly asking himself this question. 
and he decided to put it into Ronnie. And I just love the the opening sense and just that that jangling guitar line in the core when the when the chorus comes in. On top of that, and you'll notice this if you listen to the album, but overall, I'd say the overall mentality of the Joshua Tree is less is more, but more together. Yes. Well put. And you get that. You know, you've got all these really simple parts, but there's a lot of them. There's a lot of moving parts. They're all very simple, but when they come together, they make these big, grand gestures and these big, grand statements. And that's what you're going to get with a lot of the Joshua Tree. And I, I really appreciate it, honestly, for the most part. And not even to mention, With or Without You is still, to this day, one of U2's biggest hits. As much as I do love it. God, is it overplayed? <laughs> it, is, it is overplayed. But yeah. still, despite that, this I is, love this song. Yeah, this is one of the only U2 songs I had heard prior to this review, and I definitely got sick of it as well, so I understand. It's still great, though. Now, that being said, we're moving on into the best song on the album. No question. Gonna, it, it is my favorite U2 song. Mine, too. Bullet in the Blue Sky. It's top three, and it's not even close. This is every member at the height of their powers. That the drum beat, the crazy mm-hmm. bass line, Edge deci- deciding to play crazy effects on him playing slide guitar for the first time on an album, and Bono going through several different styles from just you know being yelling and aggressive, you know, that vocalizing the chorus to those little breakdowns where he's getting really breathy. He's like. Outside, it's America, and he's just getting just real, just may I say, just sexy with it. The terseness of cutting through the bullcrap and just straight up talking about the political landscape and like what El Salvador, and it just it, it hits, it just hits. So, I will say it took me a bit of time to really appreciate Bullet the Blue Sky because I went into this album not with really any set expectations the most i've gotten and i know it's bad in terms of influence is just the sudden random hate train that happened some years ago uh with you too but yeah no it, it's kind of something to come into bullet the blue sky after listening to the previous three songs in this then suddenly be ripped from the overall grand sound of it and suddenly being tossed into what feels like a war zone. But, again, that is the point. That is what it is supposed to do. And after multiple listens, this is by far where U2 just hits you with the main message of the album. America is a mess. It is a hodgepodge, and it is a fuster cluck. Indeed. And this song was written about Bono's trip to El Salvador during the Civil War crisis and all that, and just seeing America's impact on that whole situation. And there's, and there's a bunch of just really powerful imagery, like Jacob fall the angel, but the angels overcome, you know, see them burn crosses. If you don't know, Central America in the 80s... Went through some shit. And I appreciate that Bono not only felt the need to write songs about it, but he actually went there in person, which is kind of a ballsy move, let's be honest, considering what was happening there at the time. 
Yeah, um, for reference, that stuff happening then is why I was, I'm even in the States doing this in the first place. These were things that were really presenting themselves as a danger to a lot of the civilians throughout there. And the fact that U2 was even there whenever my family was fleeing is something. Note they were fleeing from Guatemala, not El Salvador. However, those those movements all across Central and South America were quite co-opted. And for good reason. But yeah, a lot of context. And, you know, you can't appreciate that about U2 as a band. You can tell that they really care about the world and world events and world tragedies and disasters of all kinds. Now, one might be able to say... You two can be pretty self-righteous, and yes, they can. They can be very self-righteous, but you can't deny their humanitarian efforts, their altruistic efforts. It really is something to admire. They're committed to what they believe in. That is an admirable quality that, no matter who you are, makes you a more compelling musician, in my opinion. They believe in who they are. The way I usually like to phrase it, it may seem pretentious, but if it holds some kind of water... It still makes a point. Exactly. And that's why, kind of backpedaling to what you said a few episodes ago, Garrett, that's why people who generally you might not be able to relate with, you can connect with in their music. Yeah. It's a powerful thing. It really is. And even if I think Bono's a weenie, like Tom York. <laughs> he makes a lot of sense. He, may, he does. He does. This is running. For that. I think you too is worthwhile. But anyway, moving on into Running to Stand Still, that harmonica solo for the win. It's one of those that it does take you a few listens. It was definitely like my least favorite track on like first listen. Oh, I love this track. <laughs> but like second and third, it was uh, like you really get the beauty of it. You get the the text, the ambient textures, and then there's the harmonica, and the album is taking a little bit of a rest because it's really just kind of hit you either with just you know, the potence of like the emotional lyrics or like in like the actual instrumentals of, of bullet. This is kind of like a respite from that. And this is actually about a, it's not really, it wasn't like an actual couple, but Bono is writing about this fictitious couple who are both drug addicts and both addicted to heroin. Running to stand still has a lot of Irish folk. And this is where their folk and blues influences start to come through a little bit and yeah, start I, to shine. I liked the blues aesthetic, the blues theme of this song in particular a whole lot. You know, you get that tambourine, the the harmonica, the really twangy guitars. Good stuff, man. I think it's actually a very nice break from just the emotional heat you get smacked with from the first half. It still fits. Like, I still think it fits very well sonically. And I, again, I hate to bring this up, but... Brian Eno, big part of the sonic cohesiveness of this album. Uh, this song is perfectly placed. It's It makes the pacing of the album shine. Yeah, and I will say, the, the pacing of this album is excellent. There is never, there's never a moment where I feel like whiplash, or I'm like, oh, this is boring, or wow, this sucks, or man, come on, hurry it up, or it, anything like that. It's, it's, it's about as good as you can get. Yeah, I will talk about the ending and how I think they could have made it even better and when it comes to their like their track listings and songs they left off but yeah this this album pacing wise is about as good as you can get and do you want to know the funniest part they gave 
a list of tracks that they wanted. So they finalized it down to these 11. They handed it, I think it was, no, it wasn't Daniel Lanois. They actually got in their last producer, Steve Lillywhite, to come in and kind of finalize everything because uh, Lanois and Eno were a little too busy to really put the finishing touches on it over like the last two weeks. So they got their old producer to come in, put the finishing touches on it. They handed it to Lily White's wife, and, and they said, what do you think about this? And she came up with this track listing. She said, here you go. They didn't even think about this at all or put it together in any kind of way. It literally was just randomly put together by their, the wife came back and said, yeah, listen to it, and this is what I think. Some would call that divine intervention. I, yeah, for real. I, for real. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't even know how you even go about getting something like this in such a way. I, I'm, I'm taken aback. Amazing. Yeah, it just works. And I think that has a lot to do with the cohesiveness in general. Yeah, the sound and just tonality. Sound. Yeah. yeah, it's cohesive without being boring. Exa- exactly. Exactly yeah. that. Eno is the ultimate glue guy. And he made this project. He, he was like, I want every... And Bono kind of told him this, that he, what he wanted out of Eno from the beginning. He said, I want every song to sound like it fits together. Like I want every song to sound as close to the the same as possible without them being different songs. I want them to all have the same soundscapes. It was definitely accomplished here, and I I feel that way about Red Hill Mining Town. Actually, oh, yeah. I think the soundscape on this one is is just lush. Yes. So very mm. aggressive, full, mono but aggressive, like aggressive vocal performance. Because this song, this song is about a mining strike in the UK that was going on at the time. Yeah, it was the uh, the National Union of Mine Workers Strike of 1984 in England. Red Hill Mining Town has a lot of Victor Hara vibes. So, Who is Victor Hara? So Victor Hara is a notable musician and activist from Chile who was executed for saying his opinion, effectively. So... A lot of the focus that you two had was with the worker and their struggles in that. And that ties together well with Victor because with Chile, their main resource that gets a lot of their workers exploited was coal. Yeah, it was coal, right? It's, it's coal, yeah. It all comes down to the fossil fuels, uh, the mobile special, as Victor Hara would put it. Yeah, this sort of mentions of these workers and their struggles and this in these really not great conditions, it's it's harbored in there. And I wouldn't be surprised if they may have gotten some inspirations from him or some of his other contemporaries. The worker exploitation struggle, I mean, that's a very common theme in a lot of political and protest music as a whole. Absolutely. Also, this song has a fantastic baseline. Indeed. <laughs> yes. Indeed. Yeah. And there's, there is a lot of historical context to these albums or these songs. And we don't want to leave that out because that adds to the layer of potence to a lot of these tracks. But anyway, uh, moving on. So in God's country, um, I'm not going to lie to you guys. This is my least favorite track on the album. That is Likewise. Oh my God, Mass! That that riff ca- that carries this song. It's great. Now, hear me out. 
this is a little bit of a contextual thing. I know when we talked about Marty Robbins, you talked about how you weren't really impressed with Master's Call because you feel like you've heard that style of song a million times. Musically, I feel like this sounds like every single arena rock, Christian pop rock song that you hear on the radio. It sounds like all of them. I kind of get that. Then again, that's an, a genre that I've avoided entirely and still See, continue to avoid. You know, I, I've been <laughs> you un, unwillingly listen. exposed to a lot of Christian yeah. pop rock, Christian rock, Christian pop in general. It sounds like every single one of those songs. And I know this is kind of a personal reason, but U2 is partially responsible for that style and that wave and that sound getting popular in that area. Kind of like that influence we were talking about earlier. And man, I just, I don't know. I couldn't stand it. They found a means of making minimalism sound grand. And while that is certainly, well, grand in the case of In God's Country, it's it's literally outdone within the same album. That definitely just impedes it. And on top of that, there are further on stuff that is almost exactly the same exactly. done by other groups, like you said. So I'm just in it for the guitar. I think Edge I mean, kills yeah, it. Guitar, I, Edge kills it on this song, including the solo. The, the guitar part's good, yes. I'm just saying that like, even in the grand scheme of the album, there are other tracks blow it out of the water. It did. I don't think it's a bad song, though, overall. I, I just did not care for it. It's overshadowed by the rest of the album. It's not yeah. my... It's not... This is my, my favorite, but it is definitely not my least favorite on this album. Really? I just think instrument. Yeah. Now, now I'm curious because I mean we're 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 getting down to the wire here. We only got four tracks to go through left. I think trip through the wires is a fucking. Bomb. Oh yeah, yeah, Speaking trip through is, the wires. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Trip through your wires is a banger. Um, the harmonica goes hard. Edge that, goes that harmonica hard. Solo is ridiculous. This is a perfect example of a straight blues song. Oh yeah, that the bluesiest that. They get on this album, and Bono gets getting really into it, like with just going like, mm-hmm. Ooh, and all I need, oh, oh man, he goes hard. Yeah, he gets really like raspy and gritty, and I'm, mm. yeah, I love it. Just, just to really make that arena part of the arena rock really stand out, make that a performance. This might be my third, second or third favorite song. Like, at, there's like Blue Sky. This is my third favorite, and then. This is up there, along with, like, Where the Streets Have No Name. Fantastic track. One Tree Hill, I will say, this was the other song that I did not care for. I felt it went on too long. I didn't yeah. really care for the dynamics of this track. The payoff wasn't really worth the length of the track. Yeah, dynamicism is very limited in scope. However, it's, once again, carried by... How I feel about In God's Country, it's it's carried by that edge riff and Bono's lyrics. This song is about the death of their roadie, essentially, who they went back to New Zealand for his funeral, and they visited this place, One Tree Hill, and it moved Bono to write this song. And while it it is kind of limited in that it doesn't really go anywhere, although it starts great. The climax was a little disappointing. Mm. The chorus is a little bit weak. The chorus could be better. It's more understated than it really should be. Exactly. The distorted guitars at the end, I was just not, I did not like the dis- distorted guitars. Was it too much of a dissonance? Yeah, yeah. 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 It just, it, like, you get this that. really, like, slow, kind of pleasant building, 
and then you just get hit with these like metal sounding guitar effects and i'm just like eh, it doesn't work dissonance is one of those things that can be a double-edged sword and in this case i don't think it works but i i do appreciate the meaning of the song every single song on this album has some strong and meaningful purpose you know there's never a point in the songwriting on this album where i felt like Bono was just writing to write or phoning it in. And I think that's important to note overall in this project. Now, next is where I believe a divide is going to start with me and the rest of you guys. See, I I like the ambient elements of Exit. Exit is a weaker track, but Exit is also one of those songs that the more you listen to it, the more it grows on you, the more stuff you find. It's very, it's so textured. Like it's about the mind and thoughts of a of a killer, pretty much. It's a very interesting yeah, song. It's a very dark turn for this album, and I I like it for that reason. I think the ambient textures complement it well. One's own lyrical adventure through this is quite something. You get something different every time you try to listen to it. Yeah, there are a lot of onions there. There, <laughs> there are a lot there of onions. Are a lot of onions. There no. is a lot of onions. Uh, no, there are a lot of layers to the onion that is the Joshua tree, and this is just one of them. Bono said, I have the lyrics, Edge, just go to town. And the Edge said, with pleasure. And just, it's like Eno and the Edge were in two separate rooms, and they both came to Bono and said, Here. And it gave, gave him something like completely different, but that, when it put together, it actually fit. Yeah, they complement each other really well. It's dissonance done well. Yes. Exactly. It, it makes it a very full sound. We're winding down here to the last track, Mothers of the Disappeared. This is my weakest song on the album. Cap. This Cap. is the weakest Cap. song. Mad Cap. 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 This is the song, this is the song <laughs> I, w- I wish was taken. I mean, the lyrical content is there. I feel like instrumentally it is not as exciting. It's not as layered. I mean, I like Exit. <laughs> But I wish, but personally, if I had to make a decision, Exit and Mothers are left off and Sweetest Thing and Silver and Gold are the ending. Instead of it softening up and fading out, you get Silver and Gold to come in and be just an aggressive punch in the face song about apartheid. It ends on like that high note. So I will acknowledge that Mothers Will Have Disappeared as a song is not necessarily top notch. It, I, I think it's a beautiful song. That's, that's, that's really what carries it for me, along with the lyrical content. The uh, layers added on by the context of the song, which I've, I've talked about. Yeah, it's uh, some pretty dark shit. It, it is dark. Very, one, it, one of, like if, the darkest song Bono has ever written. Again, I've already discussed it. It's incredibly dark. I feel like this would fit on a fucking like Nine Inch Nails album, honestly. Oh, it would. But it, in contrast with the actual soundscape, it creates this amazingly dissonant but gorgeous lyrical scape that gives you the melancholy of the state of affairs, but simultaneously gives you a hope for the future of this side of the world. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. Just any any institutions that happen to be in states that the mothers of the disappeared are in now. So now that we've been talking about the Joshua Tree, this whole recording session had thirty tracks that they were taking that they all had to consider putting into production. Out of all those tracks, eleven made it, 
And some, a lot of the B-sides didn't get finished, so they couldn't have made the production. But two notable B-sides are Silver and Gold and Sweetest Thing. Sweetest Thing later got released, got put on a Greatest Hits album that they dropped in the 90s and became a hit then. And Silver and Gold, they recorded a live version on Rattle and Hum, so I can see Silver and Gold kind of not being... It kind of, it's kind of cheating because, you know, it's like, okay, they did put a version of it on the record, but man, Sweetest Thing, I think, needs to replace a song on this album. Sweetest Thing needs to be on this album. So I want to know what are your guys' thoughts on those two those two B-sides, and should they be on the album? Should they not be on the album? What could they replace? I honestly think the the only song I would replace on this album is God's Country. I think Silver and Gold and The Sweetest Thing should have both been on the album, especially The Sweetest Thing. I was listening to this, and I was like, I was like, why the hell wasn't this on the album? Because you, you, I remember you made a big deal about it in um, our Off the Dome discussion, and to us multiple times, and I listened to it, and I was like, you're, you're fucking right, dude. Like, And because later you can't just say, it's not like a what-if story. It later blew up. It was a hit. Mm-hmm. So it's not, I have, it's not just me, old man yelling at the clouds, you know, what if. It, like, it was. So why didn't it make the cut? Why is it a B-side? I think good songs need to belong on albums. I don't like a song that's really good, and it's just sitting there by itself. Something about my OCD have an ass just it needs i need that in the album store so that that being left off just really irks me especially that i personally believe that it should be at the end because the sweetest thing into silver and gold would have just been a great just punch in the mouth of just energy instead of it kind of instead of exit and although exit's kind of hype instead of mothers just kind of like you know tapering the album off i think it should have just just really ended with a nice just electric punch it wouldn't really do much to discuss like a hypothetical track list, but the sweetest thing and silver and gold should both be on this album. If they, they're, they're both fantastic. It, this album is a 10. If they're both on there. Damn. Yeah. But let's go ahead and get into our final thoughts here. If those songs were added, this album is a 10 out of 10 for me. However, they're not. So this is not a 10 for me. I think this album is very concise. It says, a lot of good things. The instrumentals are top notch. Brian Eno was the perfect glue guy as a producer. Went above and beyond. And you know, it's rare that an album gets two producers. It worked perfect here. How they just managed to completely mesh another almost miracle. Because what other producers do you know get together and put out something of that quality without fussing and fighting? Not many. J. Dillon Mad Libs. Yeah. One of the only examples I can think of. But anyway. And Edge's guitar and the rhythm section and Bono's that twofold lyrics where you can enjoy this in a spiritual sense. You can enjoy it from a secular sense. There's a lot of history here. I learned so much, so much. The only thing that I had learned that I had already knew about was like the stuff in El Salvador. All this, all these other occurrences in history were new to me. So it's a history lesson. I mean, there's just, I mean, I could run an essay on all the different little points and things that I liked about this album. But I'll go ahead and say that this album, to me, it's a nine and a half. Strong rating. Strong rating, man. Freddie, what are your thoughts? This album is a combination of the right place, the right time, with the right people. Each and every single one of these songs, regardless of their overall quality, adds to... It's pretty close to a quintessential as you can get. This is what 
and Justice for All wishes it could have been for Metal. I think with all of that being said, with its composition, its general song structure, and just overall feel, I'm going to have to concur with Garrett. It's a nine and a half for me. Big surprise. I thought, Trey, I thought you would be the one that I thought you would like this lower, Honestly, you just kind of had this look on your face going into it, like you were about to just like rip me a new one. But I'm surprised. I'm very surprised. Color me. No, I I genuinely think this was great. I again, I came in with a minimal perspective, and this perspective is not even necessarily something that I was really too attached to because again, I don't really go out of my way to listen to you two. And maybe it's because they're overplayed. It, it, no, no, it absolutely is. I mean, no one does our age. Also, U2 is and pop stuff is just bad. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Wholeheartedly, yes. But, yeah. They're no. modern stuff. I, I will acknowledge good where there is good, and there is a lot of good here. I'm a lot happier for it. Hell yeah, Freddie. Hell yeah. Kind of shocking. I, I figured you'd rate it possibly. I didn't think you'd rate it that high. James, what are your thoughts? Man, this album, sonically, it is almost perfect. They do such an incredible job at not only the pacing, like the song placement on the album, but each song itself individually, the song structure, it's so wonderfully put together. The minimalist attitude they take towards it is wonderful and yet they're still able to make it sound just so massive and grand in scale and that's partially due to just the absolute talent of all these musicians the celestial style of edge's guitar playing the pulsating rhythms and unorthodox grooves that the rhythm section creates bono's insane almost perfect orchestral gospel like vocals Man, they all put it together, and it just sounds wonderful. Not to mention the very deep and emotional subject matter of a lot of these songs that I connect with in a lot of ways, and I appreciate very much because of my love of history. There are some weak points on the album, in God's Country being chief among them. There's a bit of pretentious like self-righteousness going on here, but it doesn't really detract that much from the music itself. Personally, I would give this album an 8.5 out of 10. Well said. Overall, my expectations for this album were kind of low because my exposure to U2 was kind of soured because of the impact they've had on music and the flurry of mediocre to bad projects they had in the 2000s and in the 2010s. So I was kind of going at this with a very skeptical angle. But I was pleasantly surprised. I haven't really heard much of U2's 80s stuff besides their big hits, but I was kind of floored. There are some parts of the album that suffer, but not much. The only song I really didn't like on this album was In God's Country, and I didn't care for One Tree Hill, but those were mostly nitpicks. I wouldn't say it's a total throwaway. I will say this album does suffer a little bit from a lack of variety in some aspects, but only... Very little. It's only in a few instances. But overall, it's fantastic. I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed this album. Kind of shocked, really. I I went into this with a very negative mindset. And I was floored. The textured soundscapes, 
the beautiful, grand, anthemic statements and gestures and vocals. And this is a point where Edge's guitar playing wasn't as worn out and overplayed as it is later in their career. And I think it works here. I mean, all these little parts, like I said, they come together, they're simple, but they come together for this big, grand gesture. And I think that's what Joshua Tree is. It's one big, grand, elegant, and potent gesture. I, I really enjoyed it, Garrett. I'm, I gotta say, you've been, you've been hyping this album up for months, years now. I've Ultimate heard you, yeah. YouTube Nut Hugger. And, and I got to say, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm the kind of guy when somebody does not shut the fuck up about something, I don't want to listen to it or I don't want to, <laughs> I'm just that kind of person. I hate it about myself, but it's true. But yeah, it was fantastic. So I'm going to have to give this an eight and a half out of 10. Great album. Highly recommend nice. it. No one got the cap. So my criteria for the cap is that if anyone gave this album a score of under eight, Big cap, big cap. <laughs> I mean, this this I, is another name. I, re- I really got to say, Garrett, I was, I was floored. I was impressed. But yeah, overall, very pleasantly surprised. Awesome 80s album. And I really see why it was so big back in the day. And for that, got to give this one a recommendation. If you're listening to this and you haven't heard any 80s U2 stuff, this is the definitive place to start. Yep. Go listen to it. I don't care how much. Songs of Innocence annoyed you. I don't care how much they showed up on your iTunes. Get over it and go listen to some old U2. Definitely in the top five most overhated bands of all time just because of that. And like, just look at their prime stuff because their prime stuff is super solid. It's pretty consistent. And that five-album run in the late 80s was really good. And on top of that, honestly look into some of these song backgrounds. I know we all uh, went over some of these bit by bit, but there's plenty of stuff that we didn't even get to cover oh, yeah. in the amount of time that we really try to allot ourselves oh, yeah. to. Yeah, jo- could, Joshua we- Tree is not the only album in their discography that has these kind of like backgrounds and stories. It is all throughout. War especially. Yep. It's a lot of nuances to every single thing they've put out just about. So yeah, take the time. It's, it's admirable and it's definitely worth researching. But with that being said, any final thoughts, guys? Nope. All good. Shout out to LaCrembo for the intro and outro music. Also, check out our link tree for where to follow us. We are on Instagram and Facebook and a variety of streaming platforms. And if you could give us a sub or a listen or even a follow, it'd be greatly appreciated. Thanks, guys. See you later.